following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, let's turn our Bibles to our uh, growing favorite book of the Old Testament. Uh, we're growing in appreciation for, yes, the Hebrew pronunciation of uh, some of these names, and uh, we have to make it through chapter 9. Those are the well-known chapters with all the names, and then we'll get into some more of the narrative of the text, which is admittedly quite a bit easier to handle as far as public reading. First Chronicles and chapter 7. First Chronicles reviews after First and Second Kings, all, a lot of the material that you find in the Kings, except that it focuses on the southern kingdom, if you've noticed that, instead of for the, the kings, both south and north. Here we're focusing on the southern. But let's start in chapter 7, read this together tonight. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Pua, Jashub, and Shimon, four in all. The sons of Tola were Uzi, Rephiah, Jeriel, Jachmai, uh, Jibsam, and Shemuel, heads of their father's house. The sons of Tola were mighty men of valor in their generations. Their numbers in the days of David was 22,000. Sorry, their number, singular, in the days of David was 22,600. The son of Uzi was uh, Israhiah, and the sons of Israhiah were Michael, or Michael properly, Obadiah, Joel, and Ishiah. All five of them were chief men, and with them by their generations, according to their father's houses, were 36,000 troops ready for war, for they had many wives and sons. Now their brethren among all the families of Issachar were mighty men of valor, listed by their genealogies, 87,000 in all. Some men's groups like uh, David Flink's group down in uh, Antofagasta use the phrase men of valor. That's their men's group that uh, meets uh, and studies the scriptures together to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Men of valor. Of course, these men were men of valor in a different sense, in a physical battle sense. Verse 6, the sons of Benjamin were Bela, uh, Beker, and Jediel, three in all. The sons of Bela were Esbon, Uzi, Uziel, Jeremot, and Eri, five in all. They were heads of their father's houses, and they were listed by their genealogies, 22,000 and 34 mighty men of valor. The sons of Becher were uh, Zemira, Joash, Eleazar, Elionai, Amri, Jeremot, Abijah, Anathoth, and Elameth. All these are the sons of Becher. And they were recorded by genealogy according to their generations, heads of their father's houses, 20,200 mighty men of valor. The sons of Jediel were Bilhan, and the sons of Bilhan were Jeush, Benjamin, Ehud, Chena'ah, Zethan, Tharshish, and Ahishahar. All these sons of Jediah were heads of their father's houses. They were 17,200 mighty men of valor, fit to go out for war and battle. Shufim and Hupim were the sons of Ir, and Hushim was the son of Aher. Now Naphtali. The sons of Naphtali were Jaziel, Guni, Jazer, and Shalom, the sons of Bilhah. Verse 14, the sons of Manasseh, his Syrian concubine bore him Machir, the father of Gilead, the father of Asriel. Machir took as his wife the sister of Hupim and Shupim, whose name was Maakah. 
The name of Gilead's grandson was Zelophehad, but Zelophehad begot only daughters. Now, you remember that probably from the book of Numbers, don't you? A couple of passages there that dealt with a special case in the law regarding their inheritance. Verse 16, Ma'aka, the wife of Machir, bore a son, and she called his name Peresh. The name of his brother was Sheresh, and his sons were uh, Ulam and Rechem. The son of Ulam was Bedan. These were the descendants of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh. His sister, Hamomelech, Boy, that's a real mouthful. Poor, poor girl. Uh, Hamoleketh bore Ishdad, Abiezer, Mahla, and the sons of Shemida were Ahian, Shechem, Liki, and Anayim. Verse 20, the sons of Ephraim were Shuthela, Bered his son, Tehath his son, Eladah his son, Tehath his son, Zebad his son, Shuthela his son, and Esar and Eliad, the men of Gath who were born in that land, killed them because they came down to take away their cattle. Then Ephraim, their father, mourned many days, and his brethren came to comfort him. And when he went into his wife, she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Beriah because tragedy had come upon his house. Now his daughter was Shiera, who, was, uh, who built lower and upper Beth Horon and Uzen Shiera. And Repha was his son, as well as Reshef, Tila, his son, Tehan, his son, Laadan, his son, Amahud, his son, Elishama, his son, Nun, his son, and Joshua, his son. Oh, there's Nun, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, their possessions and dwelling places were Bethel and its towns to the east, Naaran, to the west, Gezer and its towns, Shechem and its towns, as far as Ayah and its towns. And by the borders of the children of Manasseh were Bethshean and its towns, to Anak and its towns, Megiddo and its towns, Dor and its towns. And these dwelt the children of Joseph, the son of Israel. The sons of Asher were Imna, Ishva, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, and their sister Sarah, or Sarah. The sons of Beriah were Heber and Malkiel, who was the father of Biz, uh, Birzaith, and Heber begot Japhlet. Shomer, Hotham, and their sister Shua. Sons of Japhlet were Pasach, uh, Bimhal, and Ashvath. These were the children of Japhlet. The sons of Shimer were Ahi, Roga, uh, Jehuba, and Aram. And the sons of his brother Helem were Zopha, Imna, Shelesh, and Amal. The sons of Zopha were Shua, uh, Harnefer, Shuel, Beri, Imra, Bezer, Hod, Shammah, Shilshah, Jithran, and Bera. The sons of Jether were Jephuna, Pispah, and Ara. The sons of Ula were Ara, Haniel, and Reziah. All these were the children of Asher, heads of their father's houses, choice men, mighty men of valor, chief leaders, and they were recorded by genealogies among the army fit for battle. Their number was 26,000. And thus completes First Chronicles chapter 7. Those are significant people in the lineage of Israel, aren't they? So that brings us to the next part of our meeting this evening, and I'm going to invite Jansen if he'll come and share with us the balance of our time, what he has prepared for us by way of a ministry report, and then at the end we'll have some time for some interaction with him and Kaylee and uh, with me and you. So uh, we look forward to that. so let us know what your instructions are, brother, as far as the technology and all that, and we'll get moving here, okay? Welcome. Uh, this evening, I want to uh, present to you uh, 
what some of what the Lord has called us to do in the future and uh, help you understand exactly where we're at in that process and how you can be involved in prayer specifically and uh, for our preparations. And so what you'll see this evening, especially on the PowerPoint, uh, is in one sense almost a demonstration, if I can put it that way, of what our deputation report would look like um, as we would go to different churches and share our ministry. And obviously, uh, as as the years go by, and we are maybe less than years, but uh, we know more and more that report will kind of uh, uh, change probably, morph a little bit, hopefully, hopefully improve and become more precise. Uh, but for now, I'll present what we have. But I want to begin by uh, first sharing our testimonies. I know that's something at least the deacons have heard uh, when we first uh, arrived and um, uh, were received into membership. Um, but I don't know that everyone has heard those testimonies. And so like I would at any church that I was presenting to, I would uh, share that testimony uh, and also ask Kaylee to come up and do that as well. So you can hear, hear hers as well. But let's uh, begin the evening with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the time that we have together to worship your name. We ask now as a church, a body, that we would encourage one another Lord, that this would not just be a profitable time for Kaylee and I as we prepare for the ministry, but Lord, in many ways, be beneficial for the church, Lord, that it would uh, grow their passion and desire to, uh, to partner with missionaries, not just perhaps us in the future, but any missionary, Lord, that we can support, that we do support. Lord, it would reinvigorate, I pray, our desire to share to the lost that are in our own neighborhoods, Lord, that are within arm's reach of us in our daily lives. And may you work through each of these individuals in your perfect plan in that way that we would fulfill in part in our lives here the Great Commission to go and make disciples. We ask all of this, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen. Perhaps some of you know that uh, growing up, I was blessed to be in a godly Christian home. My dad was a pastor for uh, close to 30 years. And uh, so as a child, I I was taught the Bible, uh, both in the home and in our church or churches that we were involved with. And for that, I'm thankful. As you know, though, that does not make any one person a Christian just because they grow up in that kind of environment. Um, But I did, along the way, hear the gospel message as a young child, and I memorized often many passages and verses that revealed gospel truths that I was a sinner and destined for eternity apart from God. And so those kind of things were thankfully ingrained in my mind from a little child growing up in church and uh, part of a Luana program, which emphasizes Bible memorization. And so as uh, in my young years, the first... uh, five or six years of my life, I began, I began to understand that I had sinned. I had committed sins even in those first few years of my life, and that I had failed uh, to conform to God's moral standard. Maybe I didn't know it all of those technical terms, but I knew that uh, when I lied, that was a sin, and that was not God's perfect standard for, for us. I, as I learned those verses and recognized my sinful state, I began to feel convicted that I was a sinner unable to escape the punishment for those sins. 
And at the age of six, thankfully, my mother sat down with me and showed me from the Bible that I must believe in Christ as my Savior to be forgiven of my sin. Um, it was at that age, age six, that uh, I believed with more or less a childlike faith that Jesus had died in my place. I knew that, that he was buried. Not only that, but that he rose again so that I could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Those wonderful gospel truths. Sadly, I say, um, even though I made a profession of a sort then, my walk with Christ was quite stagnant for many years. Uh, Through my adolescent years and young teenage years, and I experienced little growth until about the age of 15 or 16 when the Lord uh, began to really get a hold of my heart. And because of the teaching that I was receiving, I began to understand more fully what it actually means to be a follower of Christ. I was taught from Scripture that believing means not just a change of mind about who Jesus is, but a change of heart, a change of desires, turning from sin and turning to follow Christ with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I was reminded that being a follower of Christ means no longer living in the flesh, but repenting from sin and living out my faith and obedience to the word of God, like Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14 teaches us to do. And so I really say that at that point, that age of 15 or 16, was when I began to see the Spirit work in me, convicting me of sin, and I became sensitive to his working. So whether you put uh, my salvation at a young age of 6 or 15, I really don't count that too important. Uh, The important point is that uh, I am a follower of Christ, and I am thankful And I am blessed to be called his child and to experience his gracious act of calling and saving me and continually sanctifying me as he does his great work in me. And so that is how God has led me to where he he is, where I am, and I uh, am thankful for his saving work. I'm going to ask Kaylee at this time to come and share a little bit of her testimony as well. I have a very similar testimony to Jansen's, but everyone is still unique in its own way, and it's my personal um, story or truth of how God saved me. So when I was about five years old um, is when I would say that I began to have an understanding of Christ. I'm very thankful and grateful just for the home that God provided me to grow up in. Um, My parents were both very involved in our church, and they taught the word at home. And it was one night when I was five years old that our specific family devotion was about salvation. Um, And it did describe heaven and hell, and I think that maybe was I scared into it and didn't want to go to hell, or sometimes I also know, though, that I didn't understand sin and that I was a sinner until that night because I knew and I believed what my parents had taught me about Jesus dying on the cross and believed what the uh, Bible had said. But I think it was that night that I kind of understood more that I was a sinner and I did wrong things, and those wrong things had a punishment, just as Scripture tells us. Um, So that night my mom kind of walked me through the gospel and explained those things, and I prayed and I uh, told God that I believed 
that he had died and I knew that I had done those wrong things and was sorry for it. But over the next nine, nine years, I was continually taught the word through, um, through church and through at home. Um, also the Christian school I attended and it was when I was 14 that there was a small girls Bible study that I was a part of at our uh, Christian school and one of the girls that was leading it challenged us um, to, to see how, how much were we growing spiritually and what that word growing meant and I never really had considered it and I knew I was saved and I knew I went to church but that's when I was challenged to that there needed to be a change there needed to be something not just a constant stable life I needed to be growing and I needed to deepen that relationship with God um, so I guess there was kind of a commitment or at least just a recognition of that when I was 14 and from then on it was when I um, tried to pursue uh, praying more and um, forming habits of daily devotions and then through those years my dad was really challenging me to serve in my church he was very adamant about us serving at a young age in our church and just being involved in the different ministries um, and that really um, took to my heart just that need of serving and the need of ministry and who, who fulfills those roles in ministry and in the church. Um, and that's what challenged me to pursue a life of ministry. And from then on, went to college um, at Appalachian Bible College and coming now to where I am today. But I'll let Jansen continue. <laughs> I wasn't planning on saying this, but as I think about my own testimony and my wife's, my wife's testimony, and uh, each, in each instance, our mothers played an integral part. And not, that's not to say that my father did not at all. He did. Uh, but that's kind of my admonition to you mothers out there, that uh, your ministry in the home uh, has a wonderful effect on those children. And so... Uh, dis don't discount your spiritual influence in the home. I'm thankful for how my mom helped in that area. Um, Dwayne, I'm going to ask you, or Pastor, uh, my mouse is over a button there on my laptop, so if you just click it, uh, it should pop up. There we go. Uh, for some of you, uh, that name of that nation may come as a little bit of a Wow, you know, we didn't know they were this focused already. Uh, and as I explained just a moment ago, um, no, nothing in one sense is set in stone, but we do have a desire to serve the Lord in missions. And uh, I'll explain more, but we do have uh, a burden for those that are in Chile, the country there in South America. And for many reasons, we feel that if the Lord were to take us there tomorrow, not assuming that he is, uh, we would have uh, just a great burden to go there, and, and it would be hard saying no uh, because of the experiences we've had there and the people that we know there, specifically the missionaries there, the connections that we've created uh, through GMSA uh, with many missionaries that serve there. And so uh, in one way, we feel that the Lord uh, very likely would be calling us to the country of Chile. And uh, I want to begin, though, by sharing it a little bit more in detail with you folks this evening uh, how God has led us up to this point in our uh, ministry. And uh, I want to first do that by uh, giving a little uh, review on our time in our uh, college years at Appalachian Bible College. Many of you know probably that we attended 
together uh, down in West Virginia at Appalachian Bible College. And that's really be where uh, the beginning of our ministry began because at that point we, we were getting ministry experience. We were training, getting trained. We were receiving uh, wonderful education there, but also serving in our local churches there as well. Kaylee kind of picking up from where she left off in her home church where she uh, played piano and taught Sunday school classes in Iwana. And then I also was teaching uh, Sunday school classes down in my church there at ABC. And so our, our, really our ministry together in one sense began there. Uh, Kaylee knew she wanted to attend Bible college and uh, knew that ABC was a great place to receive a Bible degree and become well-rounded to serve in really any church or any ministry that was like-minded with us down the road. And so uh, it wasn't really a hard decision for her. She knew folks that had gone there previously from her church. Her best friend from high school was going down the same year. And so uh, the Lord really worked in that way to to bring her down to ABC, where she received um, a double major in Bible and theology and then also in youth and family ministries. And um, that was a, a wonderful blessing for her. I know she would say the same it really strengthened her gifts, uh, specifically in children's ministry. I hope you've been able to, I'm not saying this to brag on her, but uh, to let you know that she has uh, been well-versed uh, and also acclimated to the church children's ministry here. And I'm thankful for the experience she's gaining here and for uh, your willingness to let her take part in that. And, uh, and that really is where many of her strengths are. Along the way, she was also, though, able to receive some missions classes when she was down there, uh, really during her junior and senior year, once we were uh, together in a relationship and knew that the Lord was kind of bringing us together. She wanted to receive uh, some education in as well and some training, and so I'm thankful that she was able to do that as well. While we were down there, both of us served as resident assistants in our dorms, and uh, perhaps uh, you may think of that kind of responsibility in a uh, secular school, but it looks very different, let me put it that way, at a Bible college. Uh, we're not there making sure that there's no drinking parties and things like that going on. We, are, we were there uh, developing young men and women uh, to be uh, trained for, uh, for service. And so that role that we played there provided us many opportunities for one-on-one discipleship with uh, the girls that were on her hall, the guys that were on my hall, and uh, in many ways, provided more opportunities for ministry experience. For uh, my background in going to ABC, I originally uh, didn't plan on going and receiving my four-year degree there at ABC, but the Lord changed those plans after my first year there. I, uh, I received my kind of one-year certificate, and then over the summer, I served uh, in a camp ministry, and it was there. Uh, in fact, uh, Becky knows well what camp that it was, Camp Barakel, uh, where you were saved, I believe, yeah. And um, it was at that camp that the Lord began to really change my understanding of uh, what it means to be devoted to him in full-time ministry, and that it was not necessarily a sacrifice, but a, uh, a benefit in many sorts, personally, and obviously for his kingdom in that sense. And so... Uh, the Lord changed those plans during, over my, after my first year there. And uh, when I went back, I decided that God was calling me into missions, into mission work. So I returned to ABC to finish my degree in, in Bible and theology as a first major and then my second major as in missions. 
And I'm so glad that I stayed. Uh, for one reason, I would have never been married to my, my wonderful wife there had I not gone back, so I'm thankful for that, but also for the great wealth of knowledge we received and truly the life-changing experience that it was, especially for me, as I uh, changed directions and course there, and obviously growing our love for God and his word while we were there. Uh, after that, of course, you know a little bit of what happened uh, right after we graduated. Uh, we uh, came up here to join the church here. Of course, that process had been ongoing since our final senior year of, uh, of training there at ABC. But I want to backtrack just for a moment to our time here. Between my junior and senior year, uh, I was able to do a missions internship and uh, even more specifically a church planting uh, focused internship in Chile in the uh, northern region in Antofagasta. That city may ring a bell with you because we have missionaries that we pray for that serve there, which I think actually pastors just mentioned right before our service here. Uh, that's the Flinks, and that is who I actually went and served alongside of. And so that's in part why I have a, a, a good connection with them, and, and uh, I'm always looking for updates from them in their ministry. Let's see if this will work. Help if I turned it on. All right. If you don't know, for one, where the country of Chile is, it's in South America on the western side there of the continent. And that arrow pointing there is to the northern region of Chile. If you look uh, kind of on the bottom left side of that map there, uh, the the city named Antofagasta is written there kind of in the uh, ocean. And so that is a coastline city. Uh, The background picture there behind uh, the world or the globe there is the city of Antofagasta, part of it. And so it is uh, a large city. I think uh, population, if I remember right, is about 60, sorry, 600,000, 600,000 in that city. Yes, and that is, uh, I don't know when that census was, so that it might be larger than that now. What, what year was that? Okay, yeah, I went in 18, so, yeah, Amazing. Uh, so think of Ann Arbor, which I think is, uh, what, 120-something? Yeah, so almost uh, five times about that size. So a little bit closer up picture of Antofagasta there, uh, or sometimes shortened to Antofa is what the natives call that city, and uh, quite a place to go. Uh, as I said, I went there uh, May 23rd through July 31st, so about two months uh, I was there. And so uh, I, was, I would say I was somewhat engrossed in, in the culture to some extent. I know it takes years upon years, but uh, it was enough to, to get to the point where I was beginning to feel some culture shock of uh, missing some of the experiences of the United States uh, and feeling a little bit of, not loneliness, because I was there with missionaries, but there becomes a disconnection where you don't feel like you belong, in one sense, in the U.S., and neither in this country. And so uh, I was there long enough to begin to experience some of that and the realities of not just a kind of happy-go-lucky short-term missions trip where you experience the food, the culture, the people, and some of the ministry, and then, uh, you know, get back to the normalcy of life. But 
really the daily grind of what it means to serve in another country on a daily basis. So I served there in 2018 for two months with uh, the team there, which is David and Christy Flink and their children, and then also uh, Mark and Becca Perry, who we've prayed for as well, and then a young man who was actually interning at the time I was there and now recently has been um, uh, ordained and is in the process of being called to take up the position of pastor in that church as the leading pastor. And that's uh, Andres and his wife, Clay. And now, actually, since that time, they've added two little ones to their family uh, in the past three years. So that's actually while I was there, they, inter- they, uh, they told us that they were pregnant with their first one. So that was a, a nice experience. Uh, pastor also mentioned another thing, which was the Men of Valor uh, ministry that they have, and that's what's going on there. Uh, their ministry strategy is to grow men of the church that can be leaders in the church, prepare them for potential leadership positions like deacons or, or in Andres' place as an elder, pastor in the church. And I was able to experience some of their ministry strategy by uh, uh, um, attending those, those ministries. Uh, part of their ministry strategy, because of perhaps the situation there, Uh, or in part the situation there, they didn't have a church building at the time. They had their home, which was large enough to hold some services, but uh, oftentimes we would meet in the homes of the believers there uh, while they they had those opportunities, of course, before COVID hit. This is uh, one of the Sunday school classes, the young children's Sunday school class that Andres and Clay were leading, and so taking up uh, some ministry responsibilities that would prepare them for of course, uh, their service now, which is on a, uh, a more of a pastoral leadership position. This is the church there. Uh, at that time, it's, it's grown quite a bit and changed. Actually, they're in a different building now. Uh, but these are the believers there that uh, the Flinks and the Perrys have been evangelizing to and discipling. And, uh, and now many of those are members uh, of the church there. Uh, another similar picture. I don't know why I have two in there, but... All right, Uh, I want to introduce to you a little bit of what life in northern Chile would be like if you were to go there, and uh, perhaps in part what it would be like if uh, when we arrive there in the future. Some of the geography of northern Chile, Chile is located on the western border of South America like we showed you in the uh, first picture there, and it is bordered on the east by Argentina, Bolivia, and Peru, and of course, there are many ministry opportunities there. Uh, people need Christ everywhere. Uh, and uh, we have, GMSA has missionaries that serve in Argentina. And uh, there is uh, a possibility that soon there will be missionaries in Peru as well. The Atacama Desert engulfs uh, the majority of northern Chile. And so, for instance, when Pastor is gone, he spent primarily his time in the southern part of Chile, which has a lot more uh, forestry and green grass and things like that and rain. Uh, on the other hand, the northern section of Chile is very dry and receives, uh, in fact, well, the city Antofagasta leaves le- receives less than 0.1 inches of rain per year. Um, when I was there, it actually happened to rain twice, which was like an amazing thing, but it only rained for about, I think, 15 seconds the one time and maybe five minutes the next time. 
So uh, very, very dry, arid place. Some of the kind of religious uh, profile of the country of Chile, um, you'll see there on the right side, uh, the no number one religion is Roman Catholicism, 54% at least uh, say that they follow uh, that system of belief. 14% would say they are unaffiliated. Perhaps uh, you may put in there atheists or agnostics and uh, those kind of uh, beliefs. 14% uh, say they are Protestant, although I will warn you uh, that conglomerated in that would be uh, Pentecostals, Charismatics, uh, perhaps even some of the cults, Seventh-day Adventists. And so that 14% may actually look something more like 3 or 4% or perhaps even less. So don't let that number deceive you. You're the need there for, for good, solid Bible teaching churches. Brother Thurman. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll inform you. Just give me one second. Uh, of course, then 7% say uh, some other affiliation with uh, some other religious belief. And uh, you can probably fill in the blank there with all the forms of, of idols <laughs> and beliefs that we see around the world. Um, I don't remember, actually. I think it may have been David Flink that gave me those little phrases there. But... Um, Behind or next to Roman Catholicism, you see that little phrase in the parentheses, don't hide like them. Uh, the idea there is that uh, though the Roman Catholic Church is very present there, uh, they aren't present with the people. Uh, they kind of hide behind the curtain, so to speak. They aren't shepherding the people. Of course, we, we really don't, I say this cautiously, we really don't see that with the Catholic Church here in the States either. Uh, but to much more an extreme, they, they hide behind the curtain. You know, they come and and teach, so to speak, on Sundays, uh, but they aren't there to shepherd the people, and so they really hide uh, behind the fence, so to speak, behind, be away from the people and not shepherd, shepherding them like they should. Uh, Mormonism says don't dress like them. Uh, if I, I'll just say, for instance, if I were to walk up and perhaps I'm going door-to-door -door evangelizing, dress something like this, especially if I didn't have my suit coat on, they would not answer the door because they would say, oh, there's a Mormon. Uh, many of the missionary, Mormon missionaries, let me clarify, dress with you know, a plain white shirt. And uh, so that being said, even like David Flink, often may, you may not find him in a uh, button-down white shirt or even any really button-down shirt a lot of times, especially if he's just out and about because there's too much affiliation with Mormonism there and we don't want that to be a turnoff. And so that's kind of a, a being culturally sensitive in that way uh, that we need to be aware of. And then, of course, the Pentecostal church don't act like them, uh, kind of pinning on the charismatic kind of features that they, they have. And we want to be clear that we are not associated in any part or any stance with the Pentecostal church. Uh, I have a little note down at the bottom. In every city plaza stands a cathedral and a municipal structure. Uh, and that really does represent the Chilean culture. They, they profess to be ingrained in, in the religion, but it's more of a cultural status thing than anything else. Um, it's, it's not a, from the sincerity of the heart. And so although you'll see many Catholic churches in every city, in every plaza, uh, there is no true belief in Christ uh, present in those, in those areas, or very little, I should say. 
Employment in the northern section of Chile, I say copper, copper, and more copper because the major form of employment there is uh, the large industry in mining. And uh, you may wonder, well, why is that relevant? You know, why, why, why even bring that up? Um, that is to say that many of the people that work there are your kind of blue-collar kind of people. And so, in part, you need to understand that so that when you choose a location to live, you need to understand who is living around me and uh, how, can I, how can I meet them where they are. If I, if I live in a district that is the more wealthy, the white-collar, the, the CEOs of the industry, then that's primarily who I'm going to have to focus on because the blue-collar workers, the miners, are not going to feel comfortable coming into the other district and worshiping there or even... In one sense, until this hurdle can get over, uh, you can get over this hurdle, they don't even want to necessarily be together. Uh, there's somewhat of an animosity. Uh, social stratification is really what that is. The majority of those living uh, specifically in Antofagasta work directly for the mine or work for a supplier of the mines, whether it be uh, working in machine shops, repair shops, things like that for the big equipment. And this is really similar in other cities in northern Chile because, as I said, there's mining is the primary means of employment there. The coastline cities have a large fish industry, set, for instance, Antofagasta, and do major importing and exporting as well. Some of the social attributes, specifically in this case the family, unfortunately, and I, uh, I experienced this in some sense when I was there, the marriages there uh, are not prioritized, and many families are constitute of, uh, constituted of unmarried mothers and fathers. Um, ironically, in, in one sense, it kind of works. I don't mean that in a, the biblical sense, but they've made it work where they don't. It's not prioritized, but it's also in one sense not uh, a big deal to them. It's not like they don't love their spouse or the, their partner. They just don't see the importance of marriage. And so they may have, in one sense, a wonderful family, but they aren't following uh, the biblical manner of, of fam families. And so you'll see many uh, men and women who live together, who have three, four kids, and seem to be doing well, but they, they aren't married. They don't want to make the commitment is the unfortunate side of it. And so uh, you, you have to keep that in the back of the mind when you're ministering because there may very well be a family who comes into your church that you may not even think twice that they maybe are unmarried because you see the family, you see the kids, and you think, you know, this seems to be a great family life, family situation, but that's something you need to be aware of and may end up having to counsel and help them understand that that's not the biblical way to go about marriage, relationships. Uh, two, uh, the health and happiness of the child is the priority, and although that is often good, a good thing, uh, sometimes, uh, in my experience there, it becomes too overwhelming where everything becomes about the child and even uh, they prioritize their education, their sports, uh, their life, their college above ministry, above uh, commitment to a local church. Uh, if their kid has a birthday party and it lands on a Sunday, unfortunately, many times in that culture, it doesn't matter. The birthday party is the most important thing and because the family's there and it's a big deal. And so that's kind of a obstacle that you have to work through and teach them and often many families have two or three children and especially among the poor families who just can't afford to have more and support the family 
some of the social attributes of the country there. There are 16 national ho holidays, and football, or what we call soccer here in the States, generates the largest amount of participation, both watching and playing. And music is an essential aspect of the community. Like I said a moment ago, birthday celebrations are traditionally a big deal, even above sometimes, unfortunately, church ministry and commitment and, and that sort. If you ever go down there, I hope you have the, the, uh, the, the opportunity to experience uh, pastors raising his thumb, an asado. And you may wonder, what is an asado? That is a, uh, a, barbe a barbecue that is ten times what you, we kind of probably do in here in the States. And uh, on the bottom right there, you'll see a little bit of a picture of what an asado is like. They have, it's not just one meat. You can't just have chicken or burgers. You have to have chicken, burgers, sausage, pork, everything. Otherwise, it's not a true asado. Uh, and that's just the meat. And then you have the salads and the bread. You have to have bread at every meal. And uh, it's, uh, it can become gluttony <laughs> if, you, uh, if, you don't, if you aren't careful. But, it's, uh, but the, I say that because the, the missionaries there and us can use that as a, a way of meeting people and even holding perhaps a, a community asado, inviting neighbors over, and using it as an opportunity to evangelize and, and build those relationships that are often formed around the table in that kind of culture. Uh, they have a huge emphasis on festivals, even specifically Catholic-focused uh, ones, greetings and goodbyes, honoring the elderly, a hot climate kind of culture, um, now, you may instantly think, oh, hot climate, uh, 90 degree, 90 degrees, you know, that kind of hot culture. But that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, the hot climate culture that I'm uh, talking about is the fact that they are very, very relationship-oriented. Uh, a cold climate kind of culture would be those that are kind of more individualistic. And sometimes we, have, we kind of behave in that way more or less, of course, not in the church, but in a societal level. But there's a huge emphasis on relationships and community and being together. And so those are things we keep in mind as we prepare for ministry. How can we meet the community? How can we build relationships? Uh, relationships are often created just in, in the marketplace, uh, on the side of the street, at one of the, uh, the side street stores. And, so, and people are willing to talk, unlike perhaps here where, you know, you kind of Turn, turn the other way and scurry back to your car from the grocery store. And so uh, we keep all those things in mind. Um, social stratification, unfortunately, is seen in large cities in Chile, like Antofagasta, where there is a wealthy district. There's the maybe mediocre or, uh, you know, the kind of average person. And then there's the poorer section. And you need to understand where you are ministering, not that you can't minister to other folks in other areas, uh, but there, there is some kind of cultural stratification in, that you need to be aware of and, and where you go. Um, I say there in the quotations, uh, second to bottom paragraph there, upper middle and lower classes live largely isolated from each other in quite distinctive neighborhoods and city sectors um, and, and so forth. Now, uh, uh, some positive attributes versus potential obstacles. Some of those would be that there are those kind of hot climate relationships where people are friendly. They will stop you on the street to talk. And uh, whether they know you from Adam or not, uh, they like to get to know people. And that can present many opportunities 
And so we need to be ready to, to uh, take advantage of those. Uh, the ethnic diversity, of course, is another uh, positive attribute, way to, uh, to evangelize to those of all nations and backgrounds, and also the evident physical needs, especially if you're in the poorer section. Uh, we're not there just to meet the physical needs, of course, but those can be used often as an avenue uh, to see how can we serve them and reach them without that becoming the emphasis, of course. Some of the potential obstacles, though, would be that social stratification. Also, accessibility and affordability, many things are just inflated there. Prices, you think things are getting bad here. Sometimes uh, the things that they buy there at the stores or even housing is double the price of, uh, of what we pay here. And so one simple aspect is you know, we need to be able to afford to live where we are, which means raising enough support and, and maintaining that support while we're there. Another uh, potential obstacle is the social gospelizing that's taking place there, the kind of even liberation theology that pastors talked about lately where people just uh, want you to meet their needs, want to be satisfied in that sense, think that you're there to help them move up in the uh, kind of social stratus and, and help them in their career and whatnot. And we need to emphasize uh, that, that is, we're not there to meet those needs particularly. We're there to to meet the need of, of a savior. Now, I wanted to, uh, time is getting away with you, but this is really my emphasis this evening, is introduce to you what our church planting strategy is. And um, in doing so, um, I want to answer in part uh, why, why we are going. Uh, what is our purpose in going? And I would say this, our aim is to provide a a conducive atmosphere through personal example, how we live our lives, what we say, how we behave. For what purpose? Well, for the ongoing development of qualitative growth in the lives of new and maturing believers. We're there to, to exemplify Christ, to shine the light, to, and to develop in new and maturing believers uh, Christ-likeness, wherever they are, whether it's a new believer or one that's uh, a growing believer but doesn't have the help that they need, uh, the spiritual guidance. And so that is our purpose in going. Of course, in part, also our purpose is that uh, we feel the Lord has called us in this direction, and so we want to obey that command. And so uh, we go to make disciples in that area for this purpose. Our, um, another question, though, that that might raise is, uh, well, what will we, will we be doing when we're there? What will we be doing? And our mission uh, when we arrive and ongoing while we're there is to birth a reproducing New Testament local church or churches, Lord willing, if we have multiple opportunities, located in the northern regions of Chile. That is our mission as church planters, is to birth a reproducing New Testament local church. There's a lot kind of packed into that statement there. And so our strategy is unfolding uh, what all is in that statement. It's unpackaging that statement or our mission statement there, which is to birth a reproducing New Testament local church. So, so how are we going to do that? Well, stage one in our strategy begins with learning about the target location. There are multiple cities there in nor the northern section, such as Kalama, is one city that has very much potential. Uh, it's one of those kind of uh, 
Macedonian calls, where already there are believers there who have reached out, uh, for instance, to the Flinks and said, we need help, we need a church. And uh, it's one city where there's an example that there is no knowledge, uh, or to our knowledge, there has no Bible teaching church there that that desperately needs one. Um, Another potential city is Tokopia, and that's a city to the north. It's a city uh, just, uh, I think, about 100 kilometers north of of Chile, that, or excuse me, of Antofagasta, that has potential, potential uh, uh, areas that we could reach. And so those are potential cities that we could go and, and begin learning about that target location even before we arrive, understanding what is the community like, what are the needs there, what are the physical needs, what are the social, uh, cultural kind of differences, so that we can be prepared uh, as much as we can on the forefront uh, to arrive and not be completely shocked by what we find when we arrive. Another important aspect in that stage one is finding a place to live in the target location where we can hold initial services. Um, And that's important for one because we need a first a place to live. And secondly, uh, we desire to be in the midst of the ministry. We don't want to live in another city where we're having to travel on a daily basis or a weekly basis and not be a part of the, the ministry there, meaning not being a part of the believer's lives if it's too far to drive or it becomes a hassle. So we want to be right in the center. And so uh, we want to find a place where we can live amongst the community there, amongst the new believers, where also uh, it will afford us a, a place to initially meet. Most likely we won't have the kind of finances to build or, build or, or buy a building to hold church services, and we're fine with that. We don't mind meeting in our home initially, And so we want to have the kind of place that's conducive for that. Stage two, then, would be pre-evangelism and the initial gathering of believers. How will we do that? Well, first by making contacts. That can be anything from the contacts you make on the street, your neighbors, to the marketplaces, to other pastors, perhaps, that are uh, like-minded. Not that we're there to take believers from those kind of churches, but understand what's the community like. You know, where are the needs? Perhaps if it's a city like Antofagasta with 60,000 folks, you can have a pastor in a great church in the northern section and still desperately need a good church in the southern section because it's just so big. And so making those kind of relationships, that can be done by starting. In our instance, we believe that there's a great, uh, uh, great opportunities in home Bible studies in offering uh, just introductory courses on what is the Bible, what is Christianity, and asking offering to answer those kind of questions. Having prayer meetings, perhaps, with any believers that we do find out about, and uh, the power of prayer at the beginning of a ministry is, is uh, priceless. Of course, uh, at some point, uh, then in that phase, we would begin starting a Sunday service. It may not look exactly like what it looks like here. You may not have all the encroachments, the song, or the, the musicians or, uh, or the pews even, or things like that. Perhaps most, maybe not even a Sunday school class to begin, but at least a service where the believers can come and praise and worship God, even if it's uh, a cappella, and, uh, and hear the teaching of the word. Do the one anothering kind of ministries that the Bible tells us to do, even if it's three, four, five, ten, however many to begin with. Of course, uh, as we see new believers 
uh, or new, new, new uh, people be saved. Uh, perhaps there would be baptisms as well and allowing them to demonstrate and express their faith in Christ in that way. The next uh, stage in our strategy would then be equipping the equipping of believers. And in this, uh, in this stage, uh, my focus particularly would be on uh, keeping up, of course, with the, the daily ministries, but also beginning to insightfully look at the men in the church or that are gathering and say, what, what, what men are potential uh, men for, for positions such as deacons or even Sunday school teachers or, or even potentially pastors, uh, you know, uh, men that could lead and, and perhaps take over the church at some point. And that begins very early on, that kind of assessment and working one-on-one with men uh, to develop them and prepare them for those, those ministry opportunities. And so that's more of a hands-on kind of training, a one-on-one uh, process. During that stage, then, we'd also see the formation or confirmation, excuse me, of men by the group that they do, in fact, fulfill the biblical requirements. It's not something that's just for me to do, but I want to uh, make sure the church there that's growing, the believers, the group of believers, also recognize that, yes, this man is, pre- is prepared, he's trained, he shows signs of development and abilities to serve as a deacon and also potentially down the road as an elder. And then also at that stage as well, formation and delegation of some ministry responsibilities. The fact is initially, uh, Kaylee and I, and if we have partners in our ministry, are going to have to carry the load of, of teaching and perhaps a children's Sunday school class. But our desire from the very beginning is to develop those people to be able to teach those Sunday school classes, like the initial picture with Andres and Clay teaching the children's ministry. And uh, from the very onset, training uh, women for young kids' ministries and men for the older to teach and be able to lead and be able to delegate those ministries when uh, we see fit. The next uh, stage in our strategy would be the founding of a local church, a New Testament-like church where we are focused on the most important things of the teaching of the word, of prayer, edifying, equipping of the saints, and uh, meeting together, and uh, all that entails uh, a New Testament-like local church. Those things include uh, beginning to explain and work through on a group level through a doctrinal statement so that uh, there begins to become uh, a cement, so to speak, a cementing in of the believers, a a, a unity around a a belief, and so helping them uh, work through and understand a doctrinal statement, a constitution like we have here, and a membership covenant uh, with the local church body, preparing them for the founding of the local church. We also, in that stage, would see the church through the process of saving, perhaps at some point purchasing land or building or renovating a building for the purpose of local church ministry. And you may ask, well, why, why is that so important? Can't we just keep on with the kind of the uh, at-home kind of uh, church ministry? Uh, well, in part, the issue with that that I see in my philosophy is that uh, there becomes too much dependence upon the missionary themselves. And so if you can get to the point where they can have some independence, ownership of not just property, but of themselves as a, as a body, uh, that will help in the transition of the missionary away from that ministry 
and handing over the leadership to, to the local national pastor there. There's a lot to, uh, that uh, you may have questions about. And I understand that. And so I'm going to try to quickly finish the rest of this so that at least you can ask a few questions without us going until till midnight. So I won't keep you that long, I promise. Stage five in our strategy is equipping equippers. <laughs> it's kind of a, a tongue twister there. But the idea there is that we would begin facilitating and equipping the discipleship and training process meaning uh, we would see that there are qualified men for the, uh, the position of deacon, also men that have been, been uh, trained for the, and qualified for pastoral work. And so at that point, my focus particularly would be on training them, preparing them rather uh, uh, than just continuing on as the pastor there and never handing over the reins, so to speak. And so a large focus during that stage would be uh, equipping men to equip others, to lead ministries, to be uh, the men who lead the Bible studies, to be the men who, who lead the church services, to be uh, the men who, who, um, who are checking in on the other believers, who are doing the ministry of a deacon, who are serving and uh, taking a larger uh, amount of the load of daily ministry. Um, Along with that, uh, we would be focusing on further guiding the membership, uh, that is, the, the church members who are committed to that body of Christ to observe and pray for the men of the local church and confirm God's call in the men of the local church, like Andres is uh, kind of in the process of, of doing down there, for one example. Also, uh, training them and guiding them to take ownership in an informal and formal way of training those men in the local church, also guiding them to take ownership in the ordination, eventually, of a, of a man uh, to take up the ministry there. And all of that, uh, of course, would be under our kind of facility or guidance, but really putting the emphasis on their responsibility at that stage, uh, where they are fully birthed. You know, they're, they're in their adolescent years. They're in their, their teenage years. They're, they're growing to full maturity, to adulthood as a church, so to speak. And there no longer needs that to be that kind of, you know, hands-on, holding-the-hand kind of guidance. Um, that can be detrimental if it carries on too long for a, a local church there. Finally, um, stage six in our strategy is intentional reproduction which would look like assisting and advising uh, the mother church or the local church there that we've focused our, our attention on and help them uh, think and prepare to start a new church plant by either sending out a trained man from within the church, perhaps with a uh, group who would be willing to go with him, perhaps to another part of the city, or maybe they live in a different part and there's a huge need there and so he could go down there and begin, uh, begin a church plant there or perhaps by himself, kind of in a, in a missionary church planting kind of sense, to another neighboring city. Also, during that uh, kind of exit time of our ministry, um, I myself, and perhaps if I have teammates, would take on more of an advisory role to the church leadership and begin serious preparations for uh, the next place that God would perhaps be leading us to, another neighboring city, for instance, uh, and then begin to move 
uh, begin the process of moving to that new target location with the idea that we would what? <laughs> Not just, uh, you know, relax or, or any of that thing, but start the process again to, to reproduce another uh, local reproducing uh, church that is growing and being, um, being led by a national pastor. I know there's a lot to that, uh, and so there's probably a lot of questions that you have, and I'm willing to answer those at this time. There's more I could say, but I think it's more important at this time that you have an opportunity to ask a few questions. And so is there anyone that would like to ask a question? John. Or are you planning to try to accelerate and get into the mission field faster? How has your plans in those senses evolved? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, at this point, I can't give you a, any certain time in which I can say we're going to be on the field this year, this month of this year, or whatnot. Um, but I can share with you, perhaps, and this answers your question, the kind of mile markers, if I can call them that, that lie between the here and now and the time in which we'll be on the field. One of those includes uh, the completion of my, my seminary work at uh, Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. I still have a little while to go before I finish that, but I do see that as an essential part of my ministry preparation. So that's kind of one mile marker. Um, another would be, uh, and this comes kind of after completion of seminary, but a mission board uh, decision of course, uh, we have a wonderful uh, mission board that our pastor is uh, a part of. So there's a huge draw that way, and so I'm not saying that uh, we wouldn't be going with GMSA, but of course, uh, we'd want to make sure that uh, we've you know, really studied that board and make sure that it fits with our philosophy. Of course, we know in part it does, otherwise pastor wouldn't be serving with them, but um, we still would have to make that official choice. And then pursue the candidate process with them. Another a mile marker would be, of course, deputation, that process, and then eventually language school as well. Kaylee and I have had some opportunities for Spanish training, thankfully, uh, but we're obviously nowhere where we need to be in order to, uh, to effectively minister there. Um, I, I think probably your answer isn't, or my, my answer isn't fully satisfying you because you probably are wondering more about the immediate decision as well. Um, our plan at this point is to at least finish through December here on an official capacity of internship. Uh, and that, that decision was made last January if you were here at the, um, at the annual general meeting. Uh, after that, uh, we have not made an official decision, I'll, that's full disclosure, whether or not we'll continue on in a kind of a, a leadership position here or we would conclude our our time of interning, but still it be involved as a, you know, a, a member and, of course, continue to minister as we can while I complete my seminary work. Does that uh, partly answer your question? Yeah, one follow-up, um, one milestone you didn't mention would be ordination. Are you hoping to be have us be your sending church and ordain you to ministry or... Um, are you not sure how that will unfold yet? Yeah. 
So ordination has been something that's been on our minds since the beginning, and pastors brought it up. Uh, we're in the process of me preparing for that. I'm working on my doctrinal statement, writing that. And, uh, of course, my seminary classes are helping me prepare for that as well. So that is something that is in the nearer future, uh, and most likely it would be something that would take place here in this church. Um, as far as the sending capacity, uh, I think that is very likely. As long as the church believes that we're obviously qualified and prepared, uh, we see uh, that you have that specific responsibility, not just the ordination council, but uh, my philosophy, and I know pastors as well, is that it's truly, it's actually the church that is doing that process and, and bringing that to fruition. So um, it's very likely, if I can put it at that right now. Other questions? Drew. I think the mic always helps, right? So, yes, for uh, those who are online, especially. Yeah, I have a couple of questions, right? Um, for me, uh, I have a, a strong burden for Ann Arbor, right? Mm -hmm. Our local community. Uh, how is it that you are kind of looking abroad? Like, what, what do you see? I guess right now you're kind of looking at, you, it's not specific, right, but Anapagasta, just as an example, is kind of like that direction, right? What's what's bringing you there? Which is like, especially when you're seeing, especially how, how the United States is just falling apart and uh, Ann Arbor's bad. I mean, we have our own burdens here. But what's, what's drawing you uh, elsewhere? And, it, and that's fine. I'm just curious. Sure. The burden, that's, that's, that's yeah. kind of our math, right? So yeah. could you answer that? Yeah. Well, you, you do well to say that there is a great need here, even in Ann Arbor. And uh, our... We're not trying to turn a blind eye, obviously, to that need. Um, I would go back to my initial, what I would call calling to ministry, which uh, specifically was church planning. Of course, that can happen anywhere. That can happen on the other side of Ann Arbor or other side of Michigan, other side of the country. But also does happen in other countries as well. And I think, um, if I can put it this way, the Lord has the skills that he has fitted us with uh, meet some of those uh, qualifications, if I can put it that way, for, for missionaries who are serving abroad, and not to say that we're any one special person or, or family, but I think those, those skills have tailored us to be able to meet uh, needs that are abroad and focus on international you know, ministries abroad and, and training pastors there. Um, and let me uh, bolster that, if I can, too, and say that um, also the education of pastors down there is very much lacking. They do not have some of the opportunities that we have here. So um, if in any way we can serve to help train pastors, specifically to take over a church plant there, but also just to train them, equip them, have some kind of Bible Institute ministry as well, uh, that is something that is hugely lacking there, especially in the northern section of Chile. Whereas Kaylee and I, you know, had probably at least three or four, if maybe not more, great Bible colleges that we could choose from. Um, they just don't have those opportunities. So if we can assist in any way possible to help that, I see that as a major, a major reason, I guess, to to go down there as well. Um, kind of an 
I'm careful of how to ask this question without seeming um, uh, like self-focused, right? Hmm. And so it, it, as you've kind of laid out your, your, your vision and, you know, you've gone and you've, you've planned another church, you know, and it, it's up and running and then you're off to the next to do it all over again, right? And so the idea of your, your service is you're, you're constantly kind of backfilling what you've done and you're off to the next next thing, right, which uh, is what God's calling you to do. Do you feel that your time here in Ann Arbor has been beneficial? And do you feel that it is something that then you feel is an important mission in itself to kind of be backfilled? And I'm just kind of shooting from the hip right now. That should be kind of worked on and then also is this, you know, going out and repeating, kind of backfilling. So you're kind of doing this trail of kind of backfilling as you're kind of moving through your, your service career. Does that make sense? And forgive me, I'm not trying to make it sound like it's all about fellowship. No, no, <laughs> no. It's just a curious question. Yeah. Uh, let me begin by answering the first part of your question. I have, and Kaylee has seen our time here. It's very beneficial. Thanks to you guys. Thanks to the leadership of the church. And uh, we don't just see it as a notch in the belt, so to speak, or a peg to, or a ladder rung to get us to where we want to go. Uh, our ministry here was reality. It, was, it is important, it has been important, and continues to be important to us. Um, and so um, we have benefited greatly. And, and you may realize, if, if you're kind of watching our ministry here, we haven't become too specialized, if I can put it that way, in any one area or another. I've done things with the youth uh, and I've enjoyed that ministry, but I've also done things with college students or with the adult ministries. And for the purpose of getting well-trained in every area, because as a church planter, you are needing to lead in initially in every area. And so that is, you know, sometimes you may wonder, you know, why doesn't he do more of this specifically? And I wish I could, and I could improve on that. Uh, but in part, that's because a uh, pastor has purposely helped, helped keep us well-rounded in all areas of, of ministry. Uh, teaching, but also administratively as well. Um, so r- remind me, though, uh, the backfilling part. I, I, maybe I'm not quite catching so what you're as, your, as your service, right, you're, you're going on and, and you're going to be, you know, a church planter and you're going to build up a church. Yeah. And the idea of, you know, is you're, you're, you're kind of your service going forward is always kind of like training somebody else to kind of keep doing what you're doing as you're kind of moving on down the line. Yeah. And as your, your mission has got you and brought you to Ann Arbor, do you believe that part of that training would be to then say, hey, somebody, other future intern, backfilling them, tra- kind of training that person and then going forward and kind of training and then so you're learning and training, learning and training, learning and training. Okay. I think I, I see maybe a little more light to your question. Um, I in part do see part of my responsibility to help whoever's coming up next to me um, as far as potential service here. Obviously, pastor has a major role in finding perhaps another intern uh, and, and him specifically working with him. Um, the idea, though, let me propose this to you. Uh, it's a little bit of a addition or multiplication kind of philosophy where I, I could stay here and the Lord would... Uh, I pray, bless the ministry and I, my ministry here and along with pastor. And we could grow in numbers, Lord willing, the 
amount of believers here and the depth of believers. Or there's, uh, it's not always either or, but for instance, the kind of multiplication philosophy would be that if I went somewhere else and I was able to evangelize and develop believers who then can do that themselves, where I can move on and begin that process again, the multiplication is always going to far outreach and outdo the kind of addition process of me just staying here and one by one working, you know, with a new believer or, or, or you know, discipling someone. Um, I don't know if that's... Again, I was trying not to make it sound like I was just focused on us because that was not my, yeah. not my point. It was, yeah. My point was, you know, it's it, it, your service, you know, you're kind of moving, learning and training. And so I just, yeah. you know, looking back. That's yeah. All. Let me finish this and I'll allow perhaps another question. Um, I, my last, the last stage that we mentioned was intentional reproduction where we would have created, or I say the Lord had, would have created and developed a, a local church that is sustainable on itself, independent, having a local pastor where we could move on. Um, but I don't say that in a hasty way, like we're just ready to move on. But, um, you know, because we understand that it could take, you know, more than a matter of months to do that, to get to that point. In some instances, it takes, you know, 10, 12, 15 years, depending on the situation. And so it may very be like, very well be likely that we'd only produce one sustainable, you know, local church. And if that's what happens, then praise be the Lord, you know, and we're fine with that. Uh, but if we see that there's an opportunity and that the church is healthy and strong, uh, then it would be a more of a help in my mind and our philosophy to move on and allow them to lead themselves and reproduce themselves in other areas and for us to be able to do the same in another city, another church. So maybe we can talk about this more also. You know, I'd, I'd like to make sure I fully answer as possible your question. It's getting late, so uh, if you want to ask another question, I'm, I'm fine with that. If it's something where in the coming weeks... I'd love to sit down and talk to you more about this and so that you can get a better picture and, and be able to be more involved in prayer for us as we continue this process because you are so uh, so much a part of our ministry. Uh, whether you realize that or not, you are, and, and we depend on you a lot in prayer and, and, uh, and all that you're doing here. So, Okay. Okay. Anybody else have questions for Jansen? Um, I'm trying to think of how to say this uh, question, not for Jansen, but for the church family. What do you think Jansen and Kaylee, do you think Jansen and Kaylee are outfitted for church planting ministry? Have they demonstrated gifts of that kind, that caliber? And what would you recommend them to do in the upcoming months as they work in their seminary training? Anybody have any insight on that? I think our, our deacon does. So, Jansen, I know you've worked a good bit with Darius. Do you feel that you've had opportunities to have, you know, you said multiplication can be good. I mean, you can be training men here as well. Hmm. Um, I know you've worked with the youth group. You've worked with Darius and helping that Bible study with the college. 
do you feel that you've had opportunities to practice those types of steps that you'll be doing abroad in training men to be multiplying? Hmm. Um, I, I can thankfully say I've been uh, presented those opportunities and been able to take advantage of like the ones you mentioned. Uh, if the question goes on, if it's somewhat of this kind of question, do we feel like we are fully prepared? Well, the obvious answer is no. <laughs> we always have more developing to do. Um, and I think as we continue our preparations through seminary and just whether it just be being involved in a local uh, or in a membership kind of status, um, my desire is to continue, pr I say practicing, but developing those skills and, and, and working with young men and college students. So uh, I do feel that I've, I've had many experiences, thankfully, um, but I do have, I have areas I can grow for sure. So, so I'll just show my cards a bit more. I'm, I'm thinking you'll have more of those opportunities if you uh, stick in with your role in the church. And I think that will be profitable for you, but I, I think you already knew that I was going to push you in that direction, so I'll shut up. <laughs> oh, this is coming have... to a vote now, I see. <laughs> no, no, no ordination vote right now. This was not a doctrinal exam and all that sort of thing. But the role yeah. of the church is super important Amen. in the lives of the, of the uh, people that are ministering in the church. Yes, Becky. I just had a quick question about the schooling. Where are you along that continuum? Yeah. Um, let's see. I've taken... I've completed five semesters now. Uh, those are not full-time. Uh, that includes summer classes as well, so summer semester. But uh, I am... Uh, I've just shy of probably one-fifth the way through. Um, it, it may be a little bit more than that. Yeah. Maybe it just feels that way. <laughs> uh, but uh, that, that could pick up if I, you know, I've usually taken three classes per semester. Summer's not quite as many. Um, but if I were to take four... You know, it may not, it may not, obviously, it would not take as long to finish up. So, um, but some of those classes really do keep me busy, especially Greek. So, um, yeah, and I've encouraged Jansen to take another class this fall yeah. to help accelerate the, the work. And I, I think uh, you folks can tell me, but I'm, I would be satisfied with Jansen doing that, even though it's going to take more of his time. That's an investment he's making in training for himself and his wife and future ministry, but also it's going to benefit us while he's here as well. So I know it's a lot of time and work in, but uh, and maybe a little less time for some of the ministry that he's talking about here, but I think it's good. You know, obviously not maybe to take uh, 50 credit hours, but uh, <laughs> yeah, keep pushing on that. Anybody else have any question or input for Jansen and Kaylee? The voice of the church is important in their lives. God often mediates wisdom through the church family to people. Anybody else? Becky. 
Becky, again, go ahead. And if I could just say, personally, what a blessing you have been. I Man, think I probably you. speak for all of us um, because I was praying for you and about you. I know you were. Before you got here. And the Lord has just worked in a mighty way. And I just am very thankful for you and Kaylee and for baby Adelaide. Mm. I'd like to see you stay around a long time. I think Becky wants you taking one class a semester for the next 10 years. <laughs> uh, there's a little controversy about that, huh? <laughs> I think I would lose steam, John, at that point. <laughs> Thank you. Anybody Becky. else? Why don't you folks be praying about this with Jansen and Kaylee and let them know uh, if you have thoughts about uh, your your desire. Talk to me too if you think that it would be good for them to <clears throat> to stick around and have a official ministry capacity and be supported by the church until they go on deputation, or if it would be better uh, for them to uh, step aside, take side work, and uh, you know see if we can bring in um, someone else to assist uh, in the ministry and support because we have the capacity to do that and it's the responsibility of the church to train men uh, and that doesn't have to be just in an internship role that can be in a longer term role but we have to train people to take the truth to the next place or the next generation and I'm convinced that we need to do that you know we've had several interns here over the years and uh, we don't you know just have a six month internship uh, we have more development in that program, so uh, it takes longer. But be thinking about that, praying about it, speak with me about it, speak with Jansen, and, and let us know what your thoughts are on the matter. As I say, the, the Lord can lead us as a church to help you and help Jansen and Kaylee to know what God is calling them to do. Because as I say, that's often the case that uh, you know, you have to have as a minister, myself included, and my ministry really almost started in this way where some young men came alongside and said, we think you ought to, you know, go into ministry when I was in my mid-20s and, um, well, no, maybe early 20s actually. And uh, so those are instrumental things that you can look back in your life and say, it wasn't just me putting myself out there and saying, see, I'm some big cheese, you know. It's that I'm serving and being called by God through his church to use my gifts in ministry, and, and God can use that as a great tool in our lives. So you folks in the church family have an important role for Jansen and Kaylee. God has uh, basically, by our circumstances, assigned us that role. And uh, we can't shirk that responsibility. We have to put our thinking caps on and we have to pray and we have to talk to uh, them and to myself and our, each other and say, hey, what do we think you know, the Lord would have uh, us to do about all this? So one of the reasons why I asked Jansen to do this was so that we could put a stake in the ground. We could do this. We could think about these questions and uh, Jansen and Kaylee could just begin to think like this is a great start draft number one it's going to go through 50 drafts or whatever you know before they get to the field but 
they've got to start somewhere, and my hope was that we'd start that process this week. So, yeah. all right, anything else, Jansen? No. All right, why don't you uh, pray to close, because we are long over time, but this has been very valuable. Thank you. I want to say thank you for your gracious time of listening and participating, and the hour's long, but it's a blessing to, to be able to do this, so thank you. Heavenly Father, Lord, may you bless us as we go. May you give us uh, the rest that our bodies need, Lord, to minister you this minister for your name's sake this week. Lord, we thank you for this church family here and the unity that we have, not just in doctrine, which is of primary importance, but also of, of philosophy and mind and ministry and missions. And uh, we thank you for the one anothering that takes place here in this assembly. Pray all this in your name. Amen.